everybody. Long time no see. Ha, that's a funny joke because this is my second episode in as many days. Hi there, I'm Alfie Faber. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know who I am. I'm just a random old filmmaker and soundie in Sydney. I made this podcast because I like chit-chatting to the talented creative people who put sound and image together in film. How fun is that? Um, Sydney Film Festival is coming up this week. So I had another interview on the weekend with a director who has a film playing there. Uh, Ben Lawrence is a director based in Sydney. His first feature film was Ghost Hunter in 2018. It was an absolutely insane documentary that he shot over, I think, seven years or so. Uh, that follows a ghost hunter in Western Sydney who begins to try and uncover secrets from his childhood. It's really good. I'd recommend it. Um, He followed that up with Hearts and Bones, a drama starring Hugo Weaving as a war photographer. His most recent film, Ithaca, is a documentary following John Shipton, um, Julian Assange's father, as John fights for Julian's freedom. Uh, With music by Brian Eno, it was an extremely moving and urgent story. And it's playing at Sydney Film Festival, uh, premiering this Sunday, the 7th of November, I believe, with a Q&A with Ben and the producer Gabriel Shipton, who is Julian Assange's brother. Uh, And if you're in town, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Do make sure you can check that out on Sunday. Uh, Anyway, enough of my jibber-jabbering. Let's hear from Ben. Ben Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure as always. So, um, can you... Can you tell me a bit about like uh, how you got into film and like basically how you got to here? Like what was your um, path to getting into filmmaking? You were a photographer first, right? I was never a commercially a photographer. I pursued photography as a hobby and and still do that to this day. So it was always important. I had some exhibitions and stuff like that. So I took it seriously. Um, But getting into film, I grew up in a family that's filmmakers. Mm. And so my experience of what the film industry is and was, was always very much in the imagination of a young child. And I have a vision, it's a very vivid memory of when I was very young, I can't remember, but my father was shooting a TV commercial. Oh, right. And I don't know what the product was for, but it was in a big studio somewhere in Sydney and they had smoke machines and a lot of big lights. And I'm going back to the early eighties now. And, um, the, the lady that was in it was this gorgeous red head and she was in a sequence uh, dress and I, I was fascinated by her and, and uh, there was a moment where they had the smoke machine and they were getting set up and she emerged out of the smoke and saw me, I imagine, as a young boy and kind of took an interest and said, who's that coming through the smoke? And that was my, and still is, kind of where my love affair for filmmaking began. Oh, cool. And, and, you know, it obviously changes and you understand what it actually involves and what a director is or what a cinematographer is, which is I had early uh, kind of ambitions to be. Um, but that's my earliest memory. And then visiting set growing up and 
um, never really went to film school, but I was a camera assistant for a number of years. Oh, right. And so I worked on a number of films and, and music clips and, and TV commercials. So I think that my journey has been one of working on set, mm. being on set as a child and interacting with, with crew members uh, in that capacity and kind of just getting work experience. Mm. And then actively trying to make short films and TV commercials and mm. always with a vision to make films. Yeah. Yeah. So it was features that you were really keen to direct? Yeah. I mean, features for me are like, you know, for a, for a writer, like the novel, you know, mm. it's the pinnacle of, of our craft. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the just having, you know, over 100 years of, of history in that form, um, you know, I kind of see us, the filmmakers now, as the really only the sixth generation of, of having yeah. understood that form and, mm. you know, with such recent revolutions in technology and um, streaming and things like that. It's an exciting time to be doing it, but also it's uncertain. Yeah. Um, but films were always like the pinnacle. And, and for so long, I would kind of really wanted to be ready when I made a film. Mm. And even prior to making my first documentary, feature documentary, I was looking for stories. Mm whether it be for a drama, uh, whether it be for a documentary. And the vision was always to try and have a sustainable career in that form. Mm. Um, so having made a couple of films now, I've reconnected uh, with that love of it mm. in a much deeper way of that form and making films. And uh, what's difficult is that TV now is on the rise. Yeah. And so... I'm deeply in love with feature films as a form, mm. um, but I know that TV is probably the the calling at the moment that yeah. is, that is uh, a lot of people are moving towards. Yeah, have have you been like approached with any TV stuff? Or yeah, I mean, okay, recently, particularly mm. after making Hearts and Bones, there mm. was uh, a couple of a bit of interest around um, you know some dramas that were being made, um, but also have an interest in documentaries as well. So. Mm. Uh, I um, have a, also a bit of a have done some short doco series for the ABC and stuff like that. Mm. So that, my kind of my work sits between those two worlds in a way. Mm. Mm. So just jumping back for maybe an uh, international audience less uh, knowing of Australian film history, your dad was Ray Lawrence, mm -hmm. who directed Lantana, which is. Was, did I read it was one of Australia's highest grossing movies or something? I think at the time, I mean, yeah. it was a kind of a balance of a critical and, and financial success yeah. that it it seeped into our consciousness mm. as a, a as a Australian culture mm. as a really important film. But prior to that, um, he'd made a film in, in the early 80s called Bliss, mm. which was an adaptation of Peter Carey's first novel. Right. And so the two of them worked together on that um, and that, that was the film when I was 11 or 12 that I was probably most exposed to the making of it and then mm. the result of it. And mm. um, So that, that film, I mean, I recommend anyone to go back and look at it now. It's, it's quite a remarkable film. I feel, um, I feel very rem remiss that I wasn't able to watch any of your dad's films because I, it was only a couple of days ago that I was reading about you and I saw that he had done Lantana and I was, like, wow, I haven't actually seen Lantana, but my mum talks about it all the time because it's her favourite film, apparently. So she was very excited that I was going to be interviewing you. But um, was this, what did, did you particularly learn much from your dad about filmmaking? Was in, throughout your career, has he, what kind of advice has he given you 
or what have you learned from him? Um, his main advice to me is don't have a career like him. <laughs> he, he's made three films, yeah. uh, you know, across a span of uh, 30 years. Yeah. So, you know, he, he would like to see me make more films. Mm. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the particular filmmaker that he is and the vision that he has for making a film, I think it very much sits in that auteur style. Right. So it's it's his vision that sits across the film, and I think in one hand, uh, it, it the results are remarkable, but it makes it very difficult within a, mm. a commercial uh, yeah. setting to exist like that. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, he had TV commercials to work on for his uh, entire career, mm-hmm. um, and but his his love and his focus was always on making stories and uh, feature films of his own creation and mm. working with others, you know, to forward that. Mm. So. You know, he says do more, do as much as you can, say yes more than he did, all of those sort of things. But his and my relationship throughout our lives has been built on films and the films we love. And probably what he exposed me to is uh, most powerfully was the, I guess, the the resurgence of independent cinema during the 70s, particularly out of America, Mm. things like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Um, You know, and and going back earlier, um, you know, films that, you know, like Kurosawa or filmmakers like that, Probably as a younger boy, they're the things I would have watched, he would have shown to me. Blue Velvet had a really big impact, David yeah. Lynch films and things like that. Mm. And then having someone to talk to about them and, you know, as a, as a young mind who's interested in filmmaking, to be able to talk to your father about these films and, you know, we share trailers back and forth and still do about films we, we want to see mm. and films we have seen. So, yeah, very much so in a very deep way about what it means to be a filmmaker and probably what it did to me, I think, elevated it to the point where it was too important. I think there's a lovely looseness and a renegade quality to a lot of filmmakers who have um, less reverence for filmmaking. Yeah. Um, but I also think the financial constrictions put a lot of pressure on filmmakers to be very careful with what they're doing. Mm. But on the flip side of that, I admire filmmakers that break the rules. I admire filmmakers that that think that the film they're making is the last film they're going to make or they're going to make a hundred more so it doesn't really matter. And what comes out of it is these exciting new things. So, you know, they're the sort of things I think my father taught me. Yeah. Um, and they're the things like you kind of take through uh, into your films. I, the, the first drama I did was Hearts and Bones Yeah. with Hugo Weaving. And I, I remember a conversation he had with me before we started filming. It was talking about holding things lightly. Mm. And holding something in a way in which, um, while you you had a sense of what it was, you weren't trying to control it, and and that was really um, kind of resonated with me. With I guess the approach that my father took mm. with the films that he makes as well. So it's lovely to kind of get those little connections through your career. Mm. Yeah, um, something that uh, I was curious about what what it was like working with Hugo Weaving for you because um, Glendon Ivan. Uh, told me when I interviewed him uh, that his experience working with Hugo on uh, The Last Ride was that he was a real actor's actor, Mm. a very classically trained kind of understanding the subtext kind of thing. And was that... um, was that easy for you to approach when you when it was your first drama and you had just come off a seven-year-long doco? Like, what was it like working with an actor like that? Um, working with Hugo was, I have to say, is wonderful. You know, he's, mm. he's um, very passionate, he's very intellectual, he's very committed to his work. Um, I, I knew 
from the moment I met him. I'd, and obviously his, his body of work, I didn't need to worry about what he was doing. Yeah. So it gave me a lot of comfort. Mm. Um, but what really also fascinated me about him, because he was classically trained, he has a, a deep body of work within film and theatre, mm. is that he was bringing to it uh, a lot of experience and a lot of technique as well. Mm. Um, and in that film, I put him alongside a non-actor, mm. um, uh, a man called Andrew Lurie, mm. who played a South Sudanese refugee. And it's the film's essentially about their relationship. Yeah. Hugo plays a war photographer. Mm. And... Um, what excited me is putting someone of Hugo's caliber against someone who had never been on a film set in their lives. That's exactly what Glendon was talking about with The Last Ride, how the kid the kid was a non-actor and he was having to juggle like these two styles of working. So, yeah, what was that like? That was amazing. I mean, I think Andrew, um, we did a lot of preparation over a couple of months with Andrew mm. and uh, supported him through that process. Of, mm. of by, the first, by the first day on set, um, he was well-prepared and, and had kind of exposed him to the process enough that I think that he was able to um, fly, Yeah. Um, you know. But I remember that first scene that um, Hugo and Andrew did together. You know, I think most of the crew, but definitely me, my heart was in my throat because yeah. I didn't know if it was going to pay off. I yeah. didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't know uh, if that mixture of a very technical actor and an untrained um, person being on screen at the same time was going to work because I'd had so many people tell me, don't do it. Really? Including right. the producer. We really? had a lot of discussions about <laughs> it. Because uh, Andrew, who, who uh, keep, and he reminded me constantly, he had more lines than Hugo. Oh, really? And so he saw it as he was climbing a mountain, you know, yeah. and he was a very determined man and he wanted, he wanted to prove that he could do it. But that moment when they did that scene, um, all my worries went away. I knew it was going to be okay because Andrew did such a wonderful job while he was nervous mm. it was a, a very um, intimate little scene they're in the car together talking um, but afterwards Hugo came up to me and he said I know what sort of film I'm in now right and it wasn't until that he saw where he, Andrew was in his performance mm. um, that he knew that he had to pitch himself to that yeah and that was that's that was you know Hugo's power that was his craft that was his talent because a trained actor has range you know they can they can kind of do a range of different things. And when you look at what Hugo's done in his career, uh, you know, I, I, I challenge any other actor in the world to have that range within their body of work. Mm. Um, but Andrew is a non-actor. You know, they pitch mm. themselves at one range generally mm. and they don't have much bandwidth around that. Mm. So from that very moment on, we all knew what film we were making. And that was a, a really lovely thing to have that support of Hugo and go, okay, I know where, where I am at. And, uh, you know, we were striving for authenticity and they just played off each other. And what was beautiful is that the two men, you know, off screen had this kind of relationship that was forming as a friendship. Oh, lovely. And then on screen, you obviously had a friendship that was forming. So mm. in tandem, there was some nice kind of synchronicity there. Yeah, cool. Um, and considering we're on Hearts and Bones now, I was... So I, you you haven't ever done like war photography, have no, you? No. no. But... um. I was curious whether your experience on Hearts and Bones and the story you decided to tell was kind of influenced by having just come off a seven-year-long observational documentary, which was quite sensitive in how you're portraying someone and portraying a situation. Um, and did, the, did those kinds of concerns at all fuel the story that uh, became... 
heart and bones like yeah definitely i mean i think all um i find my work you know influences but there's a constant thread i think the things that i'm interested in um photography that i had done in the past and continue to be interested in is street photography mm. so it's you know the love of people in the real world and 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 documentary uh love kind of comes out of that um but I think with every project, there's been one thing that is uh, is a weight of responsibility that you, that I feel that I carried, that kept me kind of uh, ethically um, considered through the whole project. Mm. And Ghost Hunter was obviously um, the central character, um, had suffered childhood trauma um, in his life, so it was, had kind of very complex post traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Um, and I think if you carry that into Hearts and Bones, where I was portraying in a fictional sense of war photographer, that PTSD um, is something that you want to responsibly do justice to, to yeah. the people who have suffered it as well. Mm. But I think the thing that um, most um, kind of kept me on the um, with a weight of responsibility of capturing hearts and bones and filming it was Andrew's journey of a South Sudanese mm. refugee, which was his own life experience. So he, he was actually a South Sudanese refugee. Yeah. Wow. Right. So he, he had escaped twice with once with his parents yeah. from South Sudan, they yeah. returned and then he started a family there and then he escaped with his family a second right. time. Yeah. 10 years later mm. and then came to Australia. So all of that informed mm. his, his, uh, character, mm. all of that informed that, and 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 I think it f feeds into you know also Hugo's character as well, wanting to do justice to people who do have war photography as their career, and, and yeah. um, you know so it's these little things that I think that I kind of look for to guide me through it of real world experience mm. and portraying in a way which I think respects that experience. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, well, we did jump over Ghost Hunter, and I would really love to talk about that. Um, so, Ghost Hunter, you encountered the story when you saw an, a news article about the protagonist. Uh, um, what's his name again? Yeah. Uh, so in Jason. 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 Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that was how you found the story. Yeah. Mm. In 2010, I came across a newspaper article. Mm. And it was about a wolf, uh, not a war photographer, a ghost hunter. <laughs> yeah. They're very similar things, yeah. confronting death and mm. um, suffering. Mm. Um, so it, the article I came across in 2010 was about Jason King, who is a suburban ghost hunter. Yeah. It was a hobby. He was a security guard um, for his job. On the weekends, he'd go and ghost hunt. Mm. And he wouldn't charge people. He mm. would just go into homes and ghost hunt. Um, and how he got into ghost hunting was that he'd lost his brother. Mm. And the night of the funeral, his brother appeared to him as a ghost. Mm. That's what was in the article. So that's all I knew about Jason when I contacted him. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be a really interesting story about a ghost hunter who was dealing with his grief of his lost brother. Mm. Um, but I didn't know that I was going to spend seven years making a documentary about him. Mm. Um, when I first met Jason, I had all these things in mind to ask him. But what he presented to me was uh, a pile of hospital records from his childhood. And and it really was a ream of paper. There would have been 300 documents there, wow. kind of charting uh, his age from about eight till about 12. Mm. What was the most confounding thing to me is he didn't remember any of them. Mm. And the hospital records um, 
captured a period of his life that he suffered neglect and abuse at the hands of his parents. Mm. And um, ultimately that was the story, uh, the investigation that the documentary took us to find out how this happened, who knew about it mm. and how he survived and who else knew what had happened. Yeah. And then in the background you have this ghost hunter that we're going in and ghost hunting. <laughs> yeah. So the film had a lot of different layers yeah. and it was constantly followed and trailed by his dead brother. Yeah. It would appear to him still when we were filming. So there was a lot going on in that. Um, ultimately the police came, got involved yeah. and contacted him and said they were looking for his father. And so it became a true crime story all of a sudden. Yeah. So rich, rich story and, and Very Ghost layered. Hunter was the result. Yeah. Um, what I, I thought that film did a really brilliant job of having the doc, documentary maker inserted as a character, which, um, and so like at what, and I could totally see how that was kind of necessary. And at what point did you realize that you were going to have to become involved in the story and not only be be on screen, but be an agent of like influencing stuff to a certain extent, like the way that you, um, you like helped him see a psychiatrist and stuff like that. Like, when did you realize how much you would have to be in it? Um, I, I fought it oh, <laughs> through really? the whole period. Really? Um, obviously the, friendship and relationship that Jason and I trust that we built between each other over the years, there was an ongoing connection with us that I would call him or he would call me, he'd update me on things and yeah. I'd go and film with him. Mm. So that's always going on in the background with a documentary like that. Um, and that bled into the film in a number of ways, but most importantly was probably when I confronted him about his um, behaviour, his uh, assaulting uh, his partners and that was something that was going on in the background because people were calling me about him and warning me about yeah. him and etc so it, the whole period of time that I was also filming with him I was also recording our telephone calls mm. and that was because Jason was also isolated a lot in his life so we would go out ghost hunting and he would rarely have someone to talk to about yeah just to tell what was going on. So I became that person who was behind the camera, just mm. update me, tell me what's going on, what's mm. going on here. So the, in my mind, the audience could understand what was going on in his mind, what was, go yeah. what was he was going through. Mm. Often other characters would come into his life and be that for me. Mm. So it was a bit of a, um, I guess, an exposition device mm. um, that I lacked in making that film that mm. In somehow forced me into it but ultimately when I had to confront him um, it became such an important part of the story and who he was um, that it was retroactively or retrospectively um, that I thought well if I'm in that point in the film yeah. I then have to track myself through the whole journey yeah and it was at that point the phone calls and everything else started to go into the edit Mm. But it was really late in the in the piece that we decided that that was really important, and it was the help of my editor that that yeah because you know, I that was Karen jo Karen Johnson yeah, yeah yeah so you know we spent I think seven months cutting that film, but I I love films that have the filmmaker in it, so I don't have anything <laughs> against it, but I didn't want to be that person yeah. Um, yeah, but I I was so intrinsically connected, so much so that the detective would ring me with news 
about Jason if she couldn't get in contact with him and yeah. you know he was he was socially disconnected from society enough that and and I was so close to him that things that were going on in his life were being told to me mm. and that was really hard to get across on camera without being in it in a way so there was a lot of reasons and intersections of my own life um, that that was going on and for such a long period of time but um, I did I never wanted to do it and I don't think I wanted to do it again yeah um, but you know. The closest I got in my latest film was you hear me talking, asking questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. And was um, Ghost Hunter your first documentary? Had you made like a short doco before that? or? Yeah, I'd made a, I'd made a short doco in, when I was living in New York mm. about the search for New York's best pickle. That was like a full <laughs> minute, real talking heads of all um, picklers around uh, Manhattan. Wow. That's great. Yeah, It's cool. online somewhere out there. Oh, I should check that. Um, and it came out of actually Tropfest that year. I think it was a pickle. And I, I was really? living in New York and I rushed <laughs> to make this film. I really like it actually. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched it for a while. But that's like a four-minute, cool. you know, real characters talking about the art of pickling. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then uh, when I got home from New York, I tried to make a documentary about Parramatta Road, which I still oh, right. fascinated by. Yeah, yeah. And I spent 12 months walking the length of Parramatta Road really? interviewing people. Really, and I made a eight-minute uh, documentary about uh, one man who lived in um, Taverners Hill, right? And he was an Italian uh, immigrant who came came out here in the fifties, and um, he uh, was living in a bedsit, mm. but he'd spent his life traveling the world as an engineer building highways. Oh wow! And he had this amazing photograph collection of all through Africa he'd lived. He'd boxed with Idi Amin and he'd, he'd, um, he was part of the Italian um, Alpine division in the army and he, and he carried this uh, statue of Christ up into the mountains. And, I mean, all these beautiful photographs and he ended up in this bedsit kind of talking about his life. Um, and so that was a little eight-minute doc I made about him. Oh, that's So cool. that's probably my only, and apart from just loving watching them. Yeah. You know, and you just... You know, I when I was younger, I just wondered how these things were made. Yeah. You yeah. know, you look at documentaries and you think, how did they get in that house? Yeah. yeah. You know, how did they earn that trust? Mm. And that's still what fascinates me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd i say that, like, the thing I love about Ithaca and Ghost Hunter is how they kind of embrace the artifice of documentary and the, the form of it, like, and it... it it doesn't try to be seamless, if you know mm. what I mean. Mm. I think I really liked how you just experimented with the form mm. and um, Ghost Hunter especially. Yeah. I think uh, it's a really important – sorry. No. I, I think it's a really important thing to note in that uh, mismatch, that pastiche, that, that kind of um, seeing mistakes in a way in filmmaking. Quite often I feel having those textures tends to generate more trust with the audience. I know mm. if I'm watching a film and I hear the – you know the the phone kind of crackling, or if mm. I, you know, if I'm listening to a piece of music and I can hear the the guitar, uh, the fingers on the on the strings. You yeah. know, it's those little things that you feel connected to the to the maker of the work. Exactly. And it's yeah. that in filmmaking that I really love when you see elements of the scaffolding. Yeah. You know, and and I try and do that in docos because it's so crucial to feel connected and 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 also question you know, the idea of, of, of fiction and non-fiction and, mm. and the creation of fiction yeah. in, in documentary making mm. as well. Yeah. So I was, um, 
I was curious about Ghost Hunter. Sorry uh, to jump back. Um, Jason, the whole time, seems like such a willing and eager and can, happy to be the participant while he's exploring this trauma and doing something that would have been probably very psychologically difficult mm. on him. And was there, but was there ever a point where you had to coax him or like, um, like, was he really that willing the whole time? He, Jay, yeah, look, Jason was willing the whole time. We spoke extensively when I began the documentary because I knew it was going to be a big commitment and we talked about what it involved because ultimately, you know, when you step into this with someone who's going to share their life story, they don't know what they're getting into and, mm. and quite often their desire to be involved in a film or to, uh, be, you know, be followed around and, you know, pe someone paying attention to them and taking interest in their story can get the better of them mm. and they get seduced by the idea. And I kind of wanted to present the raw, real... Uh, <laughs> facts of what it might look like and how confronting it might be for him. So I said, look, if I do this, I want to do everything. I want to know the whole story. I really want to go in deep. I'm not going to sell you out. I'm not going to, I, I tried to present to him that we were going to do this together. So assuring him that it was going to be challenging, mm. but I had his back was the conversation we had early on. Mm. From that moment on, he was fully, fully involved. There was a period of time when um, he totally disengaged Right. And I think for his own mental health, I didn't hear from him for about eight weeks. Right. And uh, he went through a really kind of terrible breakdown through that period. That was that was just as I met him. Mm. And um, so after that, I think he emerged out of that more determined to make the film. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's always, it's always on the cards as to how you navigate that. And later on in making the film, I reached out to – professionals who are yeah. far more qualified than me as to what I was dealing with. Mm. Um, but it, what was really important to me is to build a genuine relationship with him. And, you know, I care a lot for Jason. I'm still yeah. in contact with him. Mm. But, yeah, there's a lot of conversations that go on off camera. Mm. And yeah. um, Jason uh, was fully, you know, I, don't, I couldn't have made that film without him being fully into it. Yeah. You know, and that was the wonderful thing. I felt like we were doing it together. Mm. You know, he's got more on the line than I do. Mm. And, um, you know, even in making it and talking to him about where the story's going, mm. you know, uh, he was always coming up with different ideas of what we should do next. And he'd ring me and say, <laughs> so-and-so's contacted me. He loved it, you know. So yeah. once he got the measure of it and the rhythm of what we were doing, you know, it became a really wonderful experience. I've got really fond memories of that time, as dark as it was, the content. Yeah. You know, there's a camaraderie in that paranormal community and, and, and also, um, you know, the kind of the socially isolated people within Jason's group mm. um, were drawn to this, um, you know, uh, ghost hunting because there's a family feel to it. And I felt that. And, and, and again, you know, I love that experience. Yeah, cool. Well, um, let's talk about Ithaca now because Ithaca was, I watched it last night, it was bloody brilliant. Like, um, and how did that story come to you was did Gabriel Shipton who's his brother and the producer did he approach you with it or did yeah how did it come to you um so yeah in July last year Gabriel Shipton rang me mm. and said to me I'm Julian Assange's brother mm. um which I was interested straight away yeah you know um I'd been following that story for a long time and I was fascinated by it mm. and Gabriel said 
that his dad, Julian's dad, was campaigning and had been for a couple of years to uh, save Julian. And um, would I be interested in following him and making a documentary about him? Mm. And um, very quickly I said, yes, what do you have in mind? We kind of connected on a bunch of things Mm. about what we thought the film could be, what it should be, and um, I met John within a couple of weeks and uh, totally engaged with him as a character and a person who, while a reluctant character, Mm. um, made it for me it made for a far more interesting potential for a film. Right. Um, And then you had the whole backstory of Julian and ultimately Julian's extended family, his fiancée and children as well. So... The other producer, I should say, is uh, Julian's fiance's brother. Oh, right, right. Adrian yeah. Devon is yeah. you know, Stella's brother. So it, it was a family film and I, I, I knew from the start that on one hand that was going to be the greatest Achilles heel for the film, mm. that people were going to see it as one thing. Mm. Um, but going into it, I just said to Gabriel that, you know, we've just got to embrace that. You know, mm. the best thing about we have about this film is that we have a front row seat to um, a very intimate story about a, a, a intimate perspective about a global story, yeah, and yeah, that the balance story. of those things, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's like seeing a kind of personal insight like that into um, something that's going to be remembered for years to mm. come. Like it's you feel like you're there and part of history when you're watching like such a personal insight mm. to that. Um, and yeah, I was, it was very clear from the beginning what an unwilling protagonist John was. So what, what was that like working with someone who doesn't and someone who just evades questions in the way that John did? Um, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult and it was difficult and good for me and kept me on my toes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've got a lot of affection for John mm. and did through the whole process. I don't think there's ever a time where I felt like I, um, you know, didn't empathise with what he was going through mm. and what he was trying to do with um, the interviews that we were doing. I, I got an understanding of John uh, very early on is when I sent him a kind of a written form of what I thought the film was. Yeah. He came back with some feedback and what it, what his feedback was was some quotes from the Bhagavad Gita, which is an right. ancient Indian poem. Yeah. And I rang Gabriel and said, I don't quite understand. How do I incorporate this? Now, that should have been enough for me to know what I was going into yeah. because John remarkably won't answer the question directly and you yeah. see it in the film, yeah. but he will give you something that you will um, – think about for days yeah and in the edit it became difficult Mm. because he would make such a poignant point Mm. you almost needed a couple of minutes just to digest it afterwards (laughs) to process it and then understand how it um affects the film but he you know i'm i'm very much of the mind that to make a a documentary in particular about a character it ultimately has to reflect who that person is in their personality so the music the style has to reflect who they are. You look at their clothes, the way they speak, how they see the world, and hopefully mm. the film reflects who he is in yeah. a way because it's, it's about him. It's not about me and, and yeah. the story around him. And so you do step into a – John's got a particular perspective on the world, very deep thinker, and um, also I think can frame things in a way in which can really capture 
the imagination. Yeah. And so all of that was what I was trying to wrestle into the story in the edit as well. So challenging, but yeah, uh, a, a very welcome challenge. Yeah. Well, um, speaking, you mentioned the music and Brian Eno as mm. the providing music that that would have been pretty phenomenal. But and how how much were you able to collaborate with him on this? Was it a kind of like him providing stems and or was he a lot more involved in like scoring it mm. no very little interaction yeah. <laughs> at all as as yeah. i kind of was was happy to go with but what what happened was brian got involved um probably about the same time i did mm. he's strong supporter of julian has been for years yeah and so uh gabriel spoke to him about the project uh he was very interested from the start mm. and he said okay, I'm not going to watch anything. I'm just going to provide you a number of tracks. Yeah. And we hadn't even begun filming. Oh, wow. So, yeah. well, I should say that I hadn't begun filming. The cinematographer had been filming for six months and trying to formulate what we would, what, what he was doing mm. until it formulated into the film that Gabriel uh, conceived. But um, so, yeah, Brian provided us about, I think, about 15 tracks to begin with. Cool. So I had them very early on through the filming process and I would listen to them mm. and... Um, you know, there was a point, there's about half of the tracks, I was like, these aren't going to work. <laughs> you know, like half of them, I thought they're great. They really kind of listened to them in the taxi and driving through London and stuff like that. And mm. I'd come home and occasionally we were watching rushes during the filming uh, of in London and we were, we'd listen to the tracks and I'm like, that's perfect. That fits. Mm. Um, but these others, they just don't fit. Yeah. I should have, you know, known that, of course, they do fit and they, they did work beautifully, the ones that I instinctively thought they weren't going to. Right. Um, but there was a point where we got into the edit and there were a couple more things that we need and then we had a meeting with Brian. Yeah. And um, Brian said to me, what do you need? Just, what, just tell me in the best case scenario, what do you need? Yeah. And I said to him, look, my vision of John, our main character, is that, He's building a rocket to the moon mm. and he's doing it in his backyard. But I have total confidence he's going to get there. Yeah. So there's this kind of crazy bespoke hope of this man who works with his hands in his life mm. to overcome this huge force. And, and um, Brian's like, okay, you need more hope. Right. <laughs> and he sent us a number. He sent us four more tracks after that, I think. And yeah. You know, they all work beautifully. I, I don't think we didn't use anything, mm. um, but it, we had about 20 tracks and they were all, um, you know, ran extensively in different moods and tones as his music, you know, offers. So that just seemed to fit beautifully. And yeah. again, I just went with it. I mm. think what a gift and, you know, to be able to work with someone like that or have the work of someone yeah. like that across your film. Mm. It did shape what we were doing. It did shape certain sequences. So it was music led. Mm. And I wanted to give it the space to do that uh, in amongst what otherwise was, I felt, a very complex story trying to present it simply. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And, and his music speaks to that. You know, there's a lot going on in it, but it mm. seems very simple. So it kind of, you know, again, I look back and serendipitously, I think I was just very lucky and, you know, mm. hopefully life is just like that when you look back. <laughs> it's meant to be. Yeah. Well, the edit for that must have been really challenging because there were uh, some of the end scenes, like Stella speaking in Geneva, that was only like three or four months ago, right? Mm, mm. So you must have been editing 
up until very recently. And you could kind of see in the pacing of the film that it's, it's just like another thing happens, another thing happens, another thing happens. How do you construct a story out of this? Was it like a real crunch towards the end of the edit? It was. We could have gone for longer, obviously, as, yeah. as you always feel like in an edit. But we were being uh, fed rushes on a daily basis wow. out of Europe. And um, right up until, you know, in the final month, we were getting new sequences that we mm. were incorporating into the film and constantly thinking about where this film ends, mm. you know. And, you know, my vision was that it was the close of a decade that Julian's story began really much in 2010 mm. with the, you know, biggest WikiLeaks collateral murder video and kind of for us closed out with the, with the capital riots in, you know, the end of Trump mm. uh, in the US, which kind of has its intersection within our film because, yeah, that story has a, a part beyond you know, the beginning of that and also continues to this day. Mm. But we felt like they were natural bookends. But within that, yeah, we were really trying to work out where do we end this, mm. how do we end it. Mm. Um, and I, as much as it, it, it is a moment in time, I wanted it to encapsulate obviously the bigger themes of what Julian's battle is. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I... It was tricky. It was a really, it was probably most complex edit that I've ever done. And certainly, and Karen said the same. Right. You know, there's a global story and then there's a story about a father and the fiance yeah. and the kids. And, you know, there's, mm. um, so I feel like we could have gone any which way, but ultimately we looked at how does it affect John? Yeah. How does it affect him? Yeah. You know, I feel like there was so many, I feel like what the story did really well was, just very concisely touch on various aspects of John's life. Like, for example, th this incredibly cringeworthy moment in the film when John is at the rally and this guy comes up to him and starts trying to promote his music and be like, why aren't I up on stage <laughs> yeah. there? It's insane. And, but like just that 30 seconds or one minute or whatever of the film just very concisely showed me all these kind of weirdos that are mm. around the Assange mm. um, issue and how exhausted John was by it. Yeah. And, yeah, I just thought, like, there were so many little threads of story in it that built to something bigger. But, mm. yeah, I thought it was really... Yeah, it was an interesting way of telling that story. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, hopefully the film raises enough questions for you that you, um, like you said, you just get a flavour of moments. Mm. You know, we mm. could have spent a whole film of the people that John interacts with. Yeah. Um, because they're fascinating in their own right. Mm. But, yeah, it's just enough to think, okay, I've, I've done that. I've seen that moment. I can imagine that there's more of that. Mm. you know and and each moment that we touch on there's a whole universe behind that going yeah. on of that world yeah so yeah i mean i i was just so thankful that i was had the opportunity to step into that world mm. uh, and experience it and it's really changed the way i see the world and the way i process information and the way uh, the media works and all of those things and mm. and again i hope there's some of that in the film for the audience as well because it's an interesting time and again, it's a historic document and I felt like that filming it, you know, I felt mm. like it was history unfolding mm. and, and, you know, how will we judge this time? Because it's, uh, it, it's still in flux, you know, mm. 
So that's, and Julian is so symbolic of so many issues going on in the world mm. that it hasn't settled. Mm. You know, where are we in that story? And hopefully I think as you put together the films about him, about his, his battle, mm. um, then maybe we'll look back in 20 years and go, oh, that's, that's what it was. You know, mm. what is the one thing that we take out of this? And how will he be remembered, mm. you know, mm. as a historical figure will be interesting. Yeah. And I, like I don't follow uh, the news as much as I'd like to. So where where are we with uh, Sandra's case now? What's um? You said that there was a um, another hearing a couple of days ago or in a yeah. few days' time? So the, the, the hearing that basically the film deals with is his first extradition hearing that the US requested of the UK. Yeah. Um, and so the UK denied that extradition and mm. Julian remains in Belmarsh Prison in, in London. Mm. Um, and this week they had the appeal hearing mm. for that um, and there has been no verdict, but basically they've heard their arguments that the US believes that they can um, keep Julian in good mental health in their prison system. Mm. That's basically why the UK denied the extradition because mm. they believed if he was extradited, he would, uh, his mental health would suffer so much that he would die, commit suicide or suffer so much. Mm. And the extradition laws basically say that if you are extraditing someone and you know possibly that their health may be impinged, mm. uh, that they can't do it. So they heard those issues this week and we will know the outcome of that in the next month or so. Right. Wow. So he may be released, but the likelihood uh, is that whatever happens, there will be another appeal. Mm. And if that's the case, it will go to the Supreme Court in the UK, which wow. is kind of the final level in the UK. So that could happen in the next year or so. Yeah. But what it means is Julian's had two years in prison since yeah. being arrested out of the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, he probably faces another two years in, in the legal process in the UK at least. Mm. If he's extradited, um, you know, he'll be sent to the US and faces 175 years sentence. Mm. And the most remarkable thing about that for me is that this case, the reason why he faces 175 years is because he published uh, government classified information mm. um, that he published in partnership with the New York Times and The Guardian, Le Monde, El mm. Pais. Mm. So the biggest newspapers around the world partnered with WikiLeaks, mm. uh, but none of them are facing any of this. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting and, it, and, and you can understand while the US government are making an example of him. But the point we're at now is that anyone who thinks they might release any information about any governments around the world, mm. um, because of Julian's situation, they think twice. Wow. Yeah. So he's been made an example of, mm. and it puts any whistleblowers or publishers um, in a position of fear to thinking that if they do this, um, they will suffer the same consequences. So, um, the outcomes are really important, you know, mm. and Julian's symbolic of, you know, information that we should all know. Yeah. And uh, the the end of the story, we don't know what that is yet. Yeah. And was, I guess we kind of touched on this when talking about the editing, but um, did you give yourself a deadline of when to finish with this film? But like, or because it's it's still happening. So like, was was there a sense of like sadness in you for having to cut it short and, to stop filming or making it now? Yeah, look, there's the financial 
yeah. you know, restrictions around how far we can go. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of weighed heavily on us. You know, Gabriel, the producer, carried the film. Mm. We thankfully now have, you know, financial partners and, and uh, you know, a release of the film planned and all of that came mm. in uh, towards the end. But um, so that was one consideration. The other consideration was that Julian continued to languish within, you know, the prison and we wanted this film to come out and balance and yep. inform audiences and somehow, somehow be a rallying, another rallying point around his story and that was important to Gabriel and John. Mm. So that, that time was also very uh, important. Um, but we, we are continuing to film. We did film oh, this really? week as well. Right. Cool. So. I mean, that, that was easy enough to do because our cinematographer is in London and he's, you know, with John filming. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's also because the process has got enough momentum and we're able to do that. Mm. But ultimately, if, are we going to incorporate that into the current film? I don't know. Yeah. You know, there would have to be a, a kind of a, a major outcome or, or, or breakthrough yeah. or pivot in the story. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. We could we could continue filming for a long time. <laughs> Certainly where the yeah. film the film in its current form is finished. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was great as it is. So yeah. yeah. Um and so what do you have coming up next then? Actually, no, sorry. This Saturday is the premiere of Ethica. Yeah. At Sydney Film Sunday. Sunday? Yeah, Sunday the seventh. Yeah. Sunday the seventh. Yeah. In Sydney, and you're gonna be there, and yep, Gabriel uh, will be there. I'll yeah. be there. Cool. Yep, yep. Cool. So we'll introduce the film and do a short Q and A. Lovely. Which would be great. It'd be the first time an audience has seen the film. Wow. We couldn't do any yeah. tests because we made it through COVID lockdown. Yeah. Um. So we were really restricted as to getting an audience together. Wow. Um. So this, yeah, be the first outing. Oh, that's so exciting! Yeah, it's great. That's great. Mm. And um, what else do you have coming up next in your filmmaking life? Um, I've recently optioned a book called The Coconut Children. Oh, cool. Which is a local book by a, a, a debut novel by a, a young writer called Vivian Pham. Cool. It's a coming coming of age story set in Cabramatta. Right. So I'm working on developing that. Vivian and uh, her sister Kim are going to write the screenplay. Great. So that's really exciting. going to work on that with my wife, Paula Jensen. Oh, great. So that I'm really excited about that. That's kind of – and I've, I'm – you know, developing other screenplays, but yeah. very excited about kind of working in the feature film area. Mm. I want to mm. make more films. I love the festival experience, mm. um, you know, all of that and kind of open to those random calls that you get mm. about documentaries like Ithaca yeah, um, that happen, you know, and, and wonderful things like that come along all the time. So, mm. you know, just wait, prepare for the next one. That's so exciting. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much for joining me ben thanks for having me Thank great you. great questions thank you thanks again uh to ben for making the time to chat uh as always thanks to jean david leglon for the music and sound design and thanks to sydney film festival for helping uh organize the interview have a good one guys bye bye <laughs>